Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, fantastic to have you all with us in one space. Fantastic to be worshipping again. I got one of those wonderful texts this weekend, uh, whether you're aware of some of the things that go on around the message. But on Friday night, I got a text from Daniel Eduardo telling me that seven young people had given their lives to the Lord at an event he was speaking at. But it doesn't stop there. You know, it was a weekend-long thing. And by the end of the week, by the end of the weekend, 23 young people had responded to the gospel. It's so good, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful when we hear stories of salvation? And I'm sure there's loads more going on around the message. Please do uh, keep informed. Keep yourself stirred up with what God is up to. Uh, in April 3rd, 1968, Mason Temple... Memphis, Tennessee, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I've been up the mountaintop speech. I don't know if you've heard it. It's quite amazing. It's absolutely incredible. I'm going to play it for you now. So listen up. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Just incredibly powerful, isn't it? And then the very next day, he's assassinated. He's shot and killed, and his life comes to an end. Those words are even more profound in light of his very, very sudden death. On May 9th, 1912, the, the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, made his way to the Royal Albert Hall. 7,000 Salvationists waited to hear what would be his last, his final sermon. And his closing lines have been now become world-renowned, so famous that we put them on the walls of our reception for a while. Let me just remind you of those words. While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. The end for William Booth came just three months later. But those words live on. They catalyze the mission of the Salvation Army for like 
forever. In fact, they inspire a, a new generation of young salvationists each and every year. You'll hear those words if you go to pretty much any event. Those will be the words spoken. And when we get to Luke 13, we read about what is believed to be Jesus's last visit to a synagogue. This is Jesus's last speaking engagement. There's no more bookings after this one. But did you know it? Did you realize it? You know, this is Jesus' last sermon in a synagogue. But guess what? I can't read it to you. I can't play you the video. Not because I get too emotional about what's contained within there. Not because the words are too hard to hear, too inspirational, too powerful. It can't be read because there is nothing recorded. Not even one word. Initially, I found this so weird that Luke doesn't make a fuss about it. Maybe it doesn't get a mention because it comes in chapter 13, and that's way too early. Maybe there's so much more that needs to be written. You know, we've got another 11 chapters of Luke to get through. So much more of the story to come. Unlike Booth and Luther King, we don't even know where the final preach took place. There's no date There's no time, there's no destination. And this is so unlike Luke, he's usually so good at collecting all the facts for us. He's a details guy. You'd think he'd at least have put a few words down that Jesus said. He'd have told us the scripture reference so that we just know, you know, there's going to be something of significance in what Jesus says with his last and final sermon to the Jews in their own synagogue. You know, we got his first. Luke did well. He wrote that down for us. You remember that legendary, legendary sermon. That too came on a Sabbath day in his hometown, in his home church, his home synagogue, whatever you like to call that. Jesus stood and took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he began to read those incredible words that we call Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why do I tell you that? Because when I begin to read those words, I realize why there's no words recorded in the final sermon. No text notes, no nothing to hold it on to. But let me explain. Because what What Luke gives us will draw our attention to something more profound. In Luke 13, starting at verse 10, it says this. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmities." Infirmity. Then he put his hand on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. What an awesome story. Jesus' final preach, and he looks out and he sees a crippled woman. She's bent double, unable to straighten up. In fact, she's been bent double like that for 18 years. It's amazing that she's even at the temple. You know, she would have been criticized and ostracized and judged and condemned. She would have been really feeling the pressure. Because of this link between sickness and sin, she would have been bearing shame wherever she went. 
carrying not just the, the weight of her upper body, but the weight of sin and condemnation. Forced into this position of humility, staring at the ground. Spurgeon says she walks around like she's looking for her grave. And every time she meets someone from this position of humility, she has to look up, looking up at everyone. But Jesus knows her. And Jesus knows her story. He doesn't need to ask for information. He doesn't say, what diagnosis has the doctor given you? He doesn't want to know her backstory. He just knows her. And I like to think that Jesus sees her just as he's getting up. Maybe just as he's supposed to take hold of the scroll again. Just as he's about to read from the words, it's as he stands that he gets a new view, and he sees there at the back a woman bent double, bent over, maybe with, on sticks to keep herself up, and he calls her over, and he calls her to the front. Man, imagine how awful, how embarrassing that would have been if it had been anyone but Jesus that called her to the front. I wonder what she's thinking as she makes her way to the very front. But in a moment, her shame is gone. In a moment, she's put out of her misery. Jesus says these simple words, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. It's incredible. He puts his hand upon her and she immediately straightens up and begins to worship. Immediately, instantly, in the same moment. It's one of the suddenlies of Jesus. 18 years of suffering and pain ends in a second. There's no waiting. There's no awkward moment. There's no silence to see if anything happens. As soon as Jesus says the words, lays his hand upon her, it in that very moment is gone and done with and finished. What amazing words. Woman. You are set free from your infirmity. And that's it. Right there, did you spot it? That's the preach. Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Luke doesn't record the scripture reading, the date, the time, or the destination. But Jesus, in those eight words, one touch, zero seconds, gives the greatest sermon ever. The fulfillment, why? Because it's the fulfillment of his first sermon. Remember Luke 4. After he's read that bit from Isaiah 61, it says this, Then Jesus... Um, he, ro he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now in their sight, he's fulfilling his words again. This is the year of the Lord's favor. The good news has been preached to the poor. The blind now have their sight recovered. And, and here, there is freedom from the prison, for the prisoner. The oppressed have been set free right in front of them. Freedom for the prisoner. Freedom for the, from oppression. Freedom from infirmity. They are all the same origin freedom has come Jesus said he would bring it and there before them with his last sermon says take a look 
I am the one who brings freedom. At the start of his ministry, he declared it. At the very end, his final sermon, he fulfills it. Job done. This is Jesus' drop the mic moment. But people don't figure it. Nothing more is said. You know, there's no, no, nothing else to say. He is the fulfillment. Look no further. The Messiah has come. And I read these words, you know, from Colin Smith. He says, grace... Grace will either make you angry or it will lead you to worship. Grace, the grace of Christ can lead to instant worship. The woman is healed when her back is touched and it leads to praise like she can't contain herself. Like she's overflowing. You know, you imagine the songs and the praise that come from her mouth. She cannot contain it. But at that same moment, things get a bit awkward. Because the senior leader, the synagogue leader, isn't happy. Grace has led to worship for the woman, but grace leads to anger for this leader. Now, have you ever been told by a church leader, told off by a church leader who booked you for a speaking event? I confess it has happened to me. And I was told I would never be invited back. But that is a story for another time. But this leader... I can't, guys. This is going out to the world. I can't. That's behind closed doors. I'll tell you at the end. This, but this leader isn't mad because Jesus said something he shouldn't have, which may have or may not be what went wrong for me. But, but, but it's because Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. And that's like a big, big no-no. As far as the leader is concerned, healing is working and Jews cannot work on the Sabbath. If they work on the Sabbath, it's considered to be a capital crime that is worthy of death. And there in his synagogue, the place where he's the boss, on a Sabbath, someone has just been healed. The synagogue leader says what he believes, what I believe actually, to be one of the funniest, not funny lines that you'll find in the Bible. This is what it says. He says to the people, there are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Are you mad? Like Jesus is in the building. Jesus is in their place. And he's like, can you just come back tomorrow? Like mind blown. There are six days for working. Come back on one of those. And maybe if you've waited 18 years to have your moment of healing, you can wait one more day. But I'm pretty confident that this poor lady, had she shown up to the temple on one of the 5,616 days of her infirmity, that she was entitled to come to the temple, if she'd shown up on any of those days, healing would not have happened. You know that this leader ain't geared up for that kind of miracle. You know, see how, see how passive-aggressive he is. Like Jesus has just done a sin worthy of death in his midst. He doesn't turn to Jesus and says, oh boy, you getting it. Like he turns to the people and he says, it doesn't happen in this place. Six days we can do all this stuff, but not today. Don't get all happy, clappy, uh, like kind of church in this place. Don't start queuing up and start getting your healings. It's not going to happen here. Not in my synagogue, not on a Sabbath. Right here, religion has gone bad. When rule keepers forget the heart of the rule giver, there's a problem. When the true reason for the rule is lost, you know, things go messy. 
Have you ever heard about this? Well, no, you haven't, because I'm telling you for the first time. But there's a, there's, a, there's a story I heard about a vicar, new vicar, goes to a church. And uh, vicars, they, they, when they get inducted or whatever that's called, you know, they have to process down an aisle, followed by a bishop. And um, they're just about to do, start the process. And, uh, and then as they're waiting at the back, suddenly in runs the warden. Stop, stop, you can't go down yet. And, uh, and everyone's like, what, why? And he says, we haven't tied up the cat. And the new vicar's like, what are you on about? We haven't tied up the cat. And so he goes, like, I, I don't have a cat. And what happens is, uh, as the story is on, on, unfolding, we find out that once upon a time, many, many years ago, there'd been a vicar at the church, and the vicar loved cats. But he had this one favorite cat that loved the vicar so much that wherever the vicar went, the cat would go too. And so on his procession, induction procession, as he began to walk down the aisle, the cat had walked in between the legs of the vicar and the vicar had stumbled and fallen and had been a huge embarrassment. And so whenever the, the vicar needed to process, they would tie up the cat. But that vicar moved on and that cat died, but they got a new vicar and they got a new church cat and that cat would be tied up. And generation after generation, every vicar would get a cat and every cat would need to be tied up. Rules that have lost the very heart or purpose. You know, when the Salvation Army started, they were not a church, they were not a denomination, they were a missional movement. And therefore, they didn't have to have doctrines and rules around what they believed. You know, one of those, um, therefore, they didn't make any kind of rules around baptism. They didn't have to baptize, they didn't need to baptize. In fact, if people wanted to get baptized, if they got saved, they would send them to a Baptist church. But because we, we, over time, begin to forget how things happened, you know, what starts out as a, as a thought becomes a rule and a regulation. And so when I was leading a church for the Salvation Army, we took some guys to a lake and we baptised them. And someone took a picture of a baptism photo. It was really obviously a baptism photo because I was like wet to the waist, stood next to a, a man holding him and there was another man wet to the waist and a very wet man in the middle you know it was obviously a baptism photo and I was tagged into it on Facebook then the phone call came Sam can you come and see us at headquarters I go to headquarters I sit in an office and someone said I don't know what you think you're playing at but this is not okay untag yourself from the photo and I'm like You've lost your marbles. Like the rules have forgotten the heart of the rules. And then there was another occasion where I did my expenses. I put my expenses in and on one of the receipts, it said blackcurrant and bread. It was the only two line items and it probably cost three quid. And then I got a phone call from HQ. Can you come and see us? And I sat in the office and they said, I don't know what you think you're playing at, but the Salvation Army don't do communion. Like, you can't have your three pounds. You can't do this, Sam. This is taking the mick. And I'm like, have you lost your marbles? 
You know, sometimes when we get so caught up in the rules and regulations of things, we lose the very vision, the very purpose, the very heart, the grace behind it all. But this one, the one that Jesus encountered, is even more straightforward. It's even more basic. See, Jesus is accused of desecrating the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day when we remember the rest of God, that his work is finished, that his creation is complete. The rest of, we remember to rest because we remember that God rested, that his peace has been given to us, that everything is complete, his shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. But when, when, when was the command for the Sabbath given? When did it come? Let me remind you, it comes in the desert. It comes in the desert outside of Egypt. After what we call the Exodus, 430 years the Jews had been enslaved by the Egyptians. 400 years, 430 years of oppression, of bondage and captivity. 400 years of constant, unrelenting work. Seven days a week, 365, no rest. And Jesus, no, God brings freedom. Sabbath was a signal that they were a free people, free from oppression, free to worship, free to rest. Is there anything more Sabbath, anything more sabbatical than freedom from oppression? Freedom for a a woman who has been bound up and enslaved for 18 years. 18 years a captive and on the Sabbath where we should celebrate that we are free, free to rest and free to worship. There is nothing more important. And Jesus even goes on to to kind of identify the root of of her oppression. He says this is Satan's work. Satan bound her. Like surely you want to see an end to that. It's not just a disability she was born with. It's not anything like that that we might be able to come up with a good solution for. The devil is responsible for her captivity. And Jesus says this Sabbath, any Sabbath, is the perfect day for freedom. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead them out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what, her, what bound her? You hypocrites. See, you free your donkey and you free your ox and they are like pretty pointless, brainless animals and you lead them to water. You lead them to the place of freedom. You lead them to the place of refreshment and rest. But this woman, this woman who stands before you, a daughter of Abraham, one of your very own, a woman of faith, That's what it meant to be a a, a daughter of Abraham, a woman of faith, a true worshipper. You would have her remain in her oppression and her captivity. Sorry, darling, you come back another day. Come back another day when, when, when we're working. Are you mad? Are you crazy? Is she less than an animal? You'd free your animal, but leave the woman enslaved. When he said all this, his opponents were humiliated. 
but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. I love this. This is where the upside down kingdom peace comes in. His opponents are humiliated while the people begin to praise. I love that the worship leader is the one freed from oppression. As she begins to sing, people begin to join her, delighting in all the goodness of God. They can't contain themselves. In the upside down kingdom, the king sides with the oppressor. The king is not the oppressor. The king is the freedom giver. The king does not enslave, but the kingdom bring, uh, the king brings release. The king restores. The king reinstates. The king frees us to worship. The king frees us to rest in a true knowledge and understanding of God. Hear the words of Jesus spoken over you today. You are set free. You are set free. You're a free people. You're free to rest. You're free to worship. I want to be like that woman. I want to be freed and so full of praise. Nothing's going to hold me back. You know, in in Matthew 12, verse 8, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Hebrew writer goes on to call Jesus um, our Sabbath rest. It's beautiful. Jesus, our Sabbath rest. Jesus sides with the oppressed. Jesus proclaims freedom. He brings freedom and he gives rest. Remember those amazing words that Jesus speaks? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hear the words of Jesus today. You are set free. You don't have to strain and work hard at being good enough. That has been dealt with. Your rescue is complete. You have been freed from captivity, from slavery, from oppression, from the devil's schemes. That has been done. Your salvation has been won. The weight of expectations is over. Your bondage and oppression is over. Sin, the bondage of sin, the sin that so easily entangles you, the sin that keeps you down, that has been paid for. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again. Don't be burdened anymore by the yoke of slavery. Hear the words of Jesus. You are set Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that truth that we are free. We are free because you were made captive. We are free because you were oppressed. Oppressed on our behalf. Your captivity brought us freedom. And we want to live in light of that. Lord of the Sabbath. Free us today. Free us to rest in you. Free us to worship you, we pray. Amen. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.